All right, so the kids in the room, I need some help this morning. So um, I'll just let you decide if you're a kid or not. Um, So I have a couple questions for you. You can just yell out the answer from where you're sitting. You don't even have to raise your hand. Okay, so first question. What is a mirror for? Louder. Okay, so you can see yourself. All right. What's a window for? Okay, so you can see outside. Yeah. Any other thoughts there? What? Let light in. Let light in. Oh, nice. And you're not even a kid. Right. <laughs> That's right. All right. Good. So did you know that the Bible is like both? It's like a mirror and it's like a window. Okay, think about it. So actually the book of James even talks about the Bible like a mirror, okay, so that we see ourselves for who we really are, like somebody said in the back. So we see ourselves better in the mirror of the word. It, it shows us who we really are, right? But the word is also like a window. So who do we see through that window of the word? We're still on questions and, you know, response. Anybody? Who do we see through the window? So if we see ourselves in the mirror, who do we see in the window of the word? Through the window of the word. God, okay? We see God better. And actually, can also help us see other people as well. Sometimes in a different light. In a sense, the way God sees them or through his eyes. So if we were to kind of like, you know, mix everything together and, you know, get a little bit weird here as far as these two ideas, the window and the mirror, the light from the window, as Glenn mentioned, comes in and we see God through it, it ends up changing us so that we, like a mirror, reflect God's image. So The Word is both a window and a mirror. The Word made flesh, Jesus, is a window and a mirror. And when we see the Word made flesh, when we see Jesus in all of his glory and goodness, he's showing us the Father. We can see a window to the glory of God. We see him most clearly in Jesus. We see him by faith. We trust him. We love him. We admire him. We end up being changed and mirroring the word. We reflect Christ, his character. And other people, we become like a window and a mirror to other people where they see God through us. And actually, sometimes they see themselves and sometimes it brings them to their knees and sometimes it makes them mad. So that's what's supposed to happen with the Bible and it's certainly supposed to happen with the book of Jonah. We see the heart of God his incredible mercy, even to his enemies. And we see our hearts before God that oftentimes we are merciless, that we are tribal, that we are selfish and proud and self-righteous and even blind 
to those things in ourselves. So may God help us see himself and ourselves this morning so that we can repent and we can believe and be changed and reflect his heart, his character as a result of encountering him in his word. So as we start to head into the book of Jonah here, are there any people that you hate? I might need to kind of, you know, get the juices flowing here and kind of jog your mind a little bit. Are there any people that you just wish God would judge them and call down fire from heaven? You know, like the Harvey Weinsteins and Jeff Epsteins of the world. And Jeffrey Epstein is dead, obviously. How about King Kim Jong-un of North Korea? Have you ever wished and maybe even prayed that God would knock that guy off? Boko Haram, that jihadist terrorist organization, northeastern Nigeria, they were the ones responsible for abducting 276 girls back in 2014. They killed 6,600 people at least in 2014. Or how about Joseph Coney of the LRA? Widespread human rights violations, murder, abductions, mutilation, child sex slavery, and forcing children to participate in hostilities. Al-Qaeda, Hamas, ISIS. I read this week of VOM representative Peter Yasik, who was imprisoned after visiting persecuted believers in Khartoum, Sudan. And he was incarcerated, he was imprisoned there for over 400 days. And while in prison, those coordinated ISIS attacks in Paris took place. This was back in 2015, November 2015. And there was cheering in the prison all around him. So how would you respond if that's where you were? How would you feel about those people? Or think of a Jew with Nazis. Okay, there's a pretty famous book called The Sunflower, written by Simon Weisenthal. And most of this comes from um, a synopsis on a website called facinghistory.org. So in The Sunflower, Simon Weisenthal writes of an incident that occurred during the time he was a, a concentration camp inmate. One day, he and his work detail were sent to clean medical waste at a converted army hospital for wounded German soldiers. As they worked, a nurse came up to Simon and asked, are you a Jew? When he answered yes, she took him into the hospital building to the bedside of Carl, a 21-year-old dying Nazi soldier. Carl's head was completely covered in bandages with openings only for his mouth, nose, and ears. Carl wanted to tell Simon his story. He began, I know that at this moment thousands of men are dying. Death is everywhere. It's neither infrequent nor extraordinary. I am resigned to dying soon. But before that, I want to talk about an experience which is torturing me. Otherwise, I cannot die in peace. I must tell you of this horrible deed because you are a Jew. He explained his childhood and how he entered into the Nazi army, and Weisenthal was just numb. At the hands of Nazi soldiers, he had already lost 89 relatives. So the soldier confessed to the heinous act of burning to death an entire village of Jews. And with great anxiety, he described his inability to silence from his mind the screams of those people. So literally, they pulled in, and <laughs> this, this is in the words of this book. In a large square, we got out, this is the words of the Nazi, 
and looked around us. On the other side of the square, there was a group of people under close guard. An order was given, and we marched toward the huddled mass of Jews. There were 150 of them, or perhaps 200, including many children who stared at us with anxious eyes. A few were quietly crying. There were infants in their mother's arms, but hardly any young men, mostly women and gray beards. A truck arrived with cans of petrol, gasoline, which we unloaded and took into a house. Then we began to drive the Jews into the house. When we were told that everything was ready, we went back a few yards and then received the command to remove safety pins from hand grenades and throw them through the windows of the house. Behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were alight. By his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes. Then he jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. Then from the other windows fell burning bodies. We shot. Oh, God, this dying soldier cried out. I don't know how many tried to jump out of the windows, but that one family I shall never forget, least of all the child. And then a little later on, a shell exploded near Carl. So he was lying there awaiting death. The pains in my body are terrible, but worse still is my conscience. I cannot die without coming clean. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death, time and again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. The man begged him to stay, repeating his cry for forgiveness, but Weisenthal could only walk away without a word. When his group returned to the hospital the next day, the same nurse came to Simon and told him that Carl had died. Over the next years of the war, time and again, through all his suffering, Simon thought of Carl and wondered if he should have forgiven him. And there are many different levels of complexity with this, so I'm not giving simple answers here. But the question is the, the point at this point. Ought I to have forgiven him? Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question, and the author concludes his book with, you who have just read this sad and tragic episode in my life can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the crucial question, what would I have done? Seeking an answer, Weisenthal wrote to 32 men and women of high regard, scholars, Nobel laureates, psychologists, and others. 26 of the 32 affirmed his choice to not offer the forgiveness that was sought. Six speculated on the costly but superior road of pardon and mercy. I mean, obviously one question is, was it even his to grant? Okay, that's what I mean by there are multiple complexities here. But the point still stands. So now we come in our series through the Minor Prophets to the book of Jonah. And roughly, Jonah is ministering in the mid-700s. You can read a little bit about him. We don't know much, but in 2 Kings 14, you can read a little bit about him. But we're just going to dive right in, and I want you to see a little picture of the framework, the structure of the book. And might be hard to see, but this book is actually a literary masterpiece. Um, so if you see how there's this mirroring effect. So the first three verses, go, Jonah is called and he runs. 
And then down in chapter 3, there's the mirror. Jonah is called again, and he complies. Look at letter B. He runs and gets on that ship and heads to Tarshish, the pagan sailors and the sleepy prophet, and then 3, 4 to 10, the pagan Ninevites and the reluctant prophet. So there's pagans in both cases. And then C, Jonah's grateful prayer. We'll look at that. And then Jonah's angry prayer in 4, 1 to 4. And then the last section doesn't have a match because that's where the primary punch is in those last several verses where Jonah is full of anger, but God is full of pity. So you can kind of keep that in mind as a a structure as we walk through. But we're going to read through the whole book right now, and then we're going to look at three points. Holy satire, theological reflection, what do we see of God in this book, and then self-reflection, what do we see of ourselves in this book. All right? So if you're not there already, turn to Jonah, pull it up. I think they're going to have the the words up here on the screen, but um, you'll probably want to be turned there because we're going to be going back and forth, you know, after we read through it to just reference things um, under our three heading or three points. All right, here we go. Jonah one one. Now the word of the Lord. See the big four capital letters L O R D. That is a reference to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which. It's a little unfortunate in English that we translate it as Lord because Lord is a title, right? It's not a personal name, but Yahweh is a personal name, and God wants you to know his name. So it's not just that the issue is he's the Lord, though he is. It's he wants you to know his personal name. So it's actually much more personal than this. It's not not a title speaking of his sovereignty and being a master, This is the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Who are you? Show me your glory. That's where this name comes from. Exodus 3, the burning bush, I am who I am, and Exodus 33 and 34 when Moses said, show me your glory. So I'm going to read it as Yahweh, okay? Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction, to flee from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of Yahweh, at least so he thinks. So imagine you're reading this for the first time, okay? I know you all know the story, but imagine you're reading it for the first time. You've got to be thinking, what is God going to do to this insolent rebel? Probably just zap him with a lightning bolt, right? But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea. So is this judgment? Is God going to just destroy Jonah? And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So people have been using sleep to escape, you know, for a long time. It's not a recent thing. 
So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Note that God said arise in verse 2. And now the pagan captain is telling Jonah to arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil, this disaster, this calamity has come upon us. That word in Hebrew can refer to evil or disaster and calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You know, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. But they were pagan sailors. Everybody's got their own gods. There's lots of local deities. Oh, yours is named Yahweh and you're running from him? Do you have the money? That's all we care about. Get on board. But then there's this crazy storm and, oh, your God made the sea? <laughs> like, ah. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. They cared about Jonah perishing. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh, Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, Oh, Yahweh, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea, sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish, which, for what it's worth, this is just a general Hebrew term for an aquatic beast, okay? So don't get caught up on whales and sharks, and a whale isn't a fish, it's a mammal, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a, this is an aquatic beast, a big one, okay? So whether it was a whale shark or a sperm whale or who knows what, it was big, okay? And Jonah was, so the great fish swallowed up Jonah. Again, is this judgment? Going to eat him alive? And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish. This sounds good, sounds promising, saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, out of death. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Huh? I mean, isn't that what he wanted? Wasn't that his choice? Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. Almost like he's a victim. 
The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Is he including himself in this? But I, apparently not, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. So again, non-apologies are not new. <laughs> They're not just recent phenomenon. Mistakes were made. Momentary lapses in judgment. This does not sound like repentance, does it? But... Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Kind of an interesting sermon. Doesn't even mention God. I mean, certainly this could be just a summary and he may have said other things. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Actually, in Hebrew, believed is the first word in the sentence. It's just like, boom, immediate response. This like pathetic, obscure, kind of indirect sermon. I mean, obviously it's direct in the sense that he's calling, warning them of judgment, but what do we do? Who's going to overthrow us? But the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, which is a symbol of repentance. From the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a public proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Little minor moral of the story, the real God can save even when his people are idiots. <laughs> like Jonah's an idiot, and still Nineveh responds and is saved. Not because he comes in like Ravi Zacharias. <laughs> so, all right, chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It was evil to Jonah. It's the same word. It was evil in his sight. And he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So we may have thought initially he was just running the other way out of fear. 
because the Assyrians were known to be pretty brutal. And maybe that was part of it, but here it's because he didn't want God to be merciful to them. Therefore now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) So how could God have responded to him? Like, you little, you know, like. And Yahweh said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer in words, but he answers in deed. And God doesn't answer in word, but in deed. Jonah just goes out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, hoping that God would just fire, rain down fire and brimstone on him. Now, now Yahweh God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. It's actually, again, the word for evil. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Again, just how would you expect God to respond? You think that storm was tempestuous? I'll show you tempestuous. So this time, Jonah answers in word, and now God is going to answer in word. Yahweh said, you pity the plant. You are sorry about the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You see the little pointer? Finally, Jonah cares about something perishing, and it's a plant. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, which is an expression for just moral cluelessness and just moral mess, just like judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, book of judges, and also much cattle. So that's the story. Three points. Holy satire, theological reflection, and self-reflection. First off, holy satire. So satire is an artistic form, you know, whether in literature or in dramatic presentations that exposes and criticizes foolishness and corruption, whether of an individual or of a society, and it uses things like humor and irony and exaggeration to do so. So the book of Jonah is actually satire, holy satire. Jonah is almost like a comic figure. If his behavior wasn't so reprehensible and so ugly, it would be funny. You could say Jonah is a joke. 
except sadly this is no joke. And the irony is thick. You probably saw it. I mean, it's just all over the place in the book. I mean, look at chapter 1, verse 6. I mentioned it briefly. Isn't it ironic that the pagan captain is calling Jonah to arise and call out to his God? There's this pagan captain telling Jonah what he ought to be doing. I mean, the reason Jonah is in the boat is because God was concerned that the pagan Ninevites not perish. And it's finally the words of the captain. Look at them in verse 1-6. Perhaps the, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Yes, indeed, perhaps that was the whole point of calling Jonah. And in God's providence, this wild encounter with Jonah will lead to these pagan sailors worshiping Yahweh and not perishing. So it's ironic that the, the sailor is more of a spokesman for, for God than Jonah is. They, they seem to care more about who's perishing than Jonah does. More irony in verse 9 of chapter 1. Jonah says, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. Oh, really? <laughs> Like running the other way? You're trying to cross the sea to get away from him? And again, ironically, the pagan sailors fear Yahweh more than Jonah does. And there's also just this sad contrast between Jonah's repentance and the repentance of the Ninevites. I mean, what do you think of Jonah's repentance? Think it was sincere? As we read through that, I think it's a little fishy. Okay, just making sure you're awake. <laughs> Smells a little fishy to me. Okay. Um, so he never owns any fault in his prayer. And yet, as soon as the Ninevites hear this calling out, this judgment that's going to fall, they're in sackcloth and ashes and repenting of their evil and their violence. So Jonah is pitiful. I mean, I think the climax of this just pitiful, ugly heart of Jonah's is in chapter 4. Jonah's exceeding displeasure and anger at God's mercy and his exceeding gladness at the plant growing up and giving him some shade. So similar language, exceeding displeasure, exceeding gladness, very different emotions, but underneath it's the same ugly, noxious root. Jonah is upset about the mercy of God toward the Assyrians. He'd rather them get wiped out. And yet that very mercy is why he didn't drown in the sea. So he's just, his, his world is shrunk down to only his personal interests and concern. It's this ugly selfishness. And so if there's a plant giving me some shade, I'm happy. If God's not blasting my enemies, I'm mad. Two sides of the same coin. But he, he's just blind. He doesn't see himself. He doesn't see the inconsistency, the hypocrisy. If God is not merciful and slow to anger, then Jonah himself is toast. 
So he's pitiful, but God is full of pity. So we see Jonah, and we need to look in the mirror and see some of those dynamics in our own heart, but we also look through the window and we see God. We see that he is full of pity. So second point, theological reflection. What do we see of God in this book? Well, certainly we see that he is totally in control of everything, right? He's appointing, you know, a wind, and he's appointing a fish, and he's appointing um, a a plant and a worm and all of this. He hurls the great wind, and there's a tempest on the sea. So God is in the storm. But he's not just doing this to flex his muscles. He's doing it in the interest of mercy to interrupt the rebellion of his prophet and to have mercy on pagan sailors. So anybody running from God right now? Jonah was a prophet. Like if you look at 2 Kings 14, he was commended there as a servant of God. He's not, you know, thrown in with the false prophets or something like that. So none of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, is immune from rebellion and running from God's will. And the word of God is a mirror. What does God think of that kind of running? What does it look like? You know, we can kind of be blind to our own sin and what it really is. And God's word shows us what it is. And we look at this comic figure. It's ugly. It's like, whoa, are you crazy, Jonah? And yet, oh, do we ever stiff arm Holy Spirit and run and try to justify our running, to try to quiet our guilty conscience on the basis of obedience in some other areas or just words, you know, I fear Yahweh. So we look in the mirror and we need to say, oh, I need to stop. I need to get honest with God. I need to repent. I need to trust and then go and follow him. And you can because you see the character of God. Look at him. He is rescuing Jonah, not zapping him with lightning bolts. The storm was intended to rescue Jonah from himself. So sometimes God will do the same in our lives. He disciplines those he loves. He wants to rescue us from ourselves and bring us to repentance. He loves us enough to interrupt our rebellion. So again, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's look in the mirror, look at the character of God, and if we need to repent, let's do that. So obviously there's this big God in charge, but all of his appointments, all of the sovereignty that we see is all in the interest of mercy to deliver and rescue Jonah and also to pour out mercy on pagan sailors and on the Ninevites. So God's sovereignty is on display here. That's what we see through the window of the word and not just in the interest of showing off his raw power but to show his heart, his merciful, gracious, magnanimous heart. God has more ways of getting our attention than we have ways of avoiding him. And he's actually more stubborn than we are. So God is aimed at saving Jonah from himself. 
So isn't that the heart of God? Like, if you look in the word and we see through the window of the word the character of God, that's what we see over and over again. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see that most clearly in Jesus. Someone greater than Jonah is here. You know, there's some similarities, but the differences are what matters. Jonah in the belly of the fish, three days. Jesus in the tomb, three days. But Jonah rebelled against the word of God and ran from his enemies. Jesus obeyed the word of his father and ran toward his enemies to save them, to save us. Jonah resented and resisted the mercy of God. Jesus delighted in the mercy of God and embodied the mercy of God. Jonah reluctantly told the pagan sailors to throw him into the sea to save them. Jesus willingly perished in self-sacrifice to rescue the perishing. So Jonah's heart was as merciless at the core as the Ninevites. Jesus' heart is so full of mercy that he died to rescue both merciless pagans and merciless Pharisees. So where you see this Jonah-like heart, we need to repent. And let's look through the window of the word to the merciful heart of God, to the way that he treats rebellious children and how he longs to have mercy on merciless pagans. So the book of Jonah is a window to see the character of God and also a mirror to see ourselves. So point number three, self-reflection. Jonah's blindness actually helps us see helps us see ourselves. So do you see Jonah's selfishness, his bigotry, his hypocrisy, his self-righteousness? It's really easy to become a hater. We maybe don't perpetrate physical violence, but we've got a chip on our shoulders. We judge and we snub and we dismiss people. What if God dealt with us like that? serves him right, you know, that kind of attitude. Have you ever secretly delighted in the downfall of an enemy or somebody that you're jealous of or someone that you dislike, someone who's done you wrong? Do you hate your boss or some of your coworkers for some of the things that they've done? Maybe members of your extended family. Has your neighbor been a jerk and you're just irritated with him? Wish he would just move. Do you care more about your comfort than the eternal comfort of pagans who are running headlong to hell? So maybe that situation with, you know, the Nazi soldier and the the Jew is a parallel to the situation that Jonah faced. Or maybe you could think of if, if one of your daughters was abducted by Boko Haram, and then God called you to go and preach to them. Maybe that would be also a similar parallel as far as trying to like feel the weight of how hard that would be. But it doesn't just apply out there in the, the extreme and unlikely situations. It applies to all of our hate and anger and dismissal of people we don't like. Again, do you see like the stuff, like Jonah's, Jonah's world was so small 
What made him really angry was God's mercy on others. What made him really happy was his own comfort. What makes us exceedingly angry? What makes us exceedingly glad? If we care more about our temporal comfort than their eternal comfort, we have a Jonah heart. So this book is trying to mess with us. (laughs) Are you okay with God loving your enemies? being merciful to your enemies. This is actually good news because we all, by nature, are enemies of God. And if God can't act that way with others, then what right do we have for him being merciful to us? That's the problem with self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Do you want the world to work according to works, according to, you know, like this relative righteousness, like at least I'm not like those people? Or do you want this world to work according to mercy? Well, if so, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's both wonderful, but it also can be hard. So the church, knowing the mercy of God, knowing, seeing in the mirror, seeing our enemy of God by nature, heart, and God's mercy is the only reason it's any different for me, shouldn't the church be totally different from the world? I mean, good grief, our world is filled with so much hate and cynicism. And there's just so much classism and ethocentrism and racism and Phariseeism and judgmentalism. And it's just, uh, look on social media, it's just a cesspool. People spewing hate left, right, and center. Has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. That kind of, all those isms, all those, you know, classism and I'm, basically you'd be saying the world would be a much better place if everyone was more like me more like us. That's a Jonah heart. So the book of Jonah is a mirror. I mean, people talk about loving the poor, but often they love the idea more than actually loving real people in poverty. Because oftentimes it means you're going to deal with a lot of stink and manipulation and spin and lying and laziness and rights orientation and repeated poor choices and horrific abuse and on and on. Imagine being called to minister in Appalachia with meth houses and parents screaming at their kids in Walmart and putting sugar soda in their baby bottles. Like, you see how easy it could be to hate these people and just dismiss and ignore them? Or what if you're called to go to a Muslim land and you try to love and love and love and you are hated and shunned and your life and safety are threatened? some point, you just want to shake the dust off your feet and hope that fire is called down from heaven. Like, this is just, this is not a message for somebody else. This is for us. We want to root out that Jonah heart by God's grace as we look in the mirror and get honest with ourselves and we do it by seeing the incredible mercy of God toward us, natural Pharisees or pagan rebels 
that God came after. I mean, what? there's no other explanation except his amazing mercy and grace. So this little book is a mirror to see what's in our hearts. It's not pretty oftentimes, but this book is a window for us to see into God's beautiful, beautiful, merciful heart. And did you notice how it ends? It's kind of abrupt, isn't it? That's kind of like a cliffhanger. Just like the parable of the prodigal son. The wild son came home. But the older son was really ticked off at the mercy of the father and he wouldn't come into the party. He was actually farther from home than the younger son. So this book ends on a cliffhanger and what happens is you've been watching this story unfold and then the camera pans to you and it says, what about you? God questioned Jonah. He showed his heart through this book. He showed Jonah his heart. He shows us our hearts and he asks, will mercy triumph over judgment? Let's pray. Oh God, you are Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we thank you that that is who you are. We are merciless oftentimes. We are the opposite. We are quick to anger, selfish and prideful, self-righteous. And we thank you that you sent Jesus to make your enemies into your friends. And I pray that we would repent of any Jonah-like heart. And we pray that you would fill us with your beautiful, merciful heart and give us eyes to see those around us that need that same mercy. And may we move toward them and not stand back aloof or cold-hearted. Please help us, Lord. We need your help, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.